good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to open it to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Our focus this morning will be on verses 10 through 12, uh, but we're going to read verses 1 through 12 to kind of remind us of the context. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, and when you find that, uh, I invite you to stand in honor of God's Word. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, we believe that these words were given by inspiration of God, and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Romans 14, beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray together. Our Lord, whom have we in heaven but you? To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Therefore, we now come to your words, seeking these words of eternal life. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. A mind to understand. A heart to believe. And a spirit to obey. Guide us with your counsel, O Lord. May the preaching of your word be accompanied by the power of your spirit. Amen. So this morning, we have the opportunity to look again at Romans 14 to to continue Paul's argument that he's been building since the beginning of this chapter for why we are to welcome our brothers, why we are to welcome the weaker brother, not to quarrel over opinions, but rather to welcome him as indeed a brother. And I was reminded of, as I was studying this week, I was reminded of uh, our, our 
picture of Romans that we've kind of looked at as we've looked through the book of Romans, and you see it right there. Uh, and you see a crown of thorns there, and we, we understand that, that that is a symbol, right, of the, of the gospel that we have understood from the book of Romans. But if you notice, kind of in the background, there's something else, and it is a mountain. There we go. And so it's a mountain. And so I was thinking about this picture that we've been looking at for years at this point, about at, at thinking through what, what's the point of a mountain as we think about the book of Romans. And I was reminded of a song that uh, when I first became a pastor in kind of the, I guess you could call it the backwoods of Mississippi, we used to sing this song, and it was called We're Marching to Zion. Isaac Watts wrote the verses, and um, someone else came back and wrote a, a chorus that went with it. And it says, we're marching to Zion, we're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're, we're all marching to Zion. And I was reminded of that as we look at Romans chapter 14, because we've, we've been given this, this glorious, full picture of the gospel in the first part of Romans. And, and to be honest, all of the sermons that I can remember hearing from the book of Romans come from Romans 1 through 8. They're all of these, these glorious pictures from my childhood of, of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means for someone to be in Christ and how, how we who had nothing to offer had been brought near by the blood of Christ and all of these glorious things that we've been made righteous, not by our own works, not by our own deeds, but by the, the righteousness of Christ. And for some reason, I can't really remember any sermons in Romans 9 through 15, 16. And I was thinking about what, what these are here for. Why are they written? Why are they brought to us? And we know that they're written for our instruction. And I was reminded that we're all marching to Zion together. And Paul is giving us an understanding here in Romans 14, our text today, of one way that it looks like to march to Zion together, especially as it pertains to quarrels over opinions. And so I want you to keep that picture in your mind of walking, marching to Zion together. And just as a way of background, I think it'd be helpful for us to be, to be reminded what we have kind of arrived at as a definition of opinion. As we've been looking at Romans 14, Lawson has, has helped us to see that the, the definition that we can kind of agree on for opinion is things that are neither positively or negatively commanded in Scripture. Things that we, we look to, like Paul gives us examples here of observing days or eating certain foods or not eating certain foods. We have this picture of opinion that is things that are not necessarily commanded or not commanded. They're, they're things that, that are, are commanded, not, not commanded to do and not commanded not to do. We find them in this, in this middle ground, this, this ground of opinion. And the Greek word for opinion here is dialogismos, and it's, it really means like a thought or an inward reasoning. And as I was thinking about this, this term, inward reasoning, I was thinking that often we have an, a picture of opinion in our mind that may not be exactly what Paul is discussing here. Because I've, I've thought about it in my own life as I've heard the sermons in Romans 14 to think through this, this idea of, I have these opinions, but aren't my opinions based in the Scriptures? Aren't they, aren't they using the wisdom that I have in the Scriptures to, to come at an opinion? And the answer is yes, of course. What we've seen throughout Romans 14 is not that there are Christians who are just 
just playing fast and loose with the Scriptures and deciding on opinions without ever actually thinking about the Scriptures. We would, we would, we would be glad to say that, that we each look into the Scriptures and we see what is positively commanded and we see what is negatively commanded and we try to make wise decisions about what to believe and what to do and what not to do based off of those Scriptures. And so I thought of another word that I think helps us get at the, the root of what these quarrels would be about. And that word is conviction. Because as we look at the Scripture here, we, what we're seeing is people, in verses 5 and following, people who are people of conviction. They've looked at the Scriptures and they've decided, this is what I'm going to think, this is my opinion, based off of what the Scriptures say and how I think most wisely to obey them. They're convictions. Strong, biblically-derived convictions. And so the question becomes, and what Paul is answering in chapter 14, is if, if we all have strong, biblically-informed opinions or convictions, if there's things that we are passionate about that are neither commanded positively or negatively in the Scripture, then how do we live with one another and not forsake those opinions necessarily, not forsake those convictions necessarily? How do we live with one another in unity while differing on things that the Bible neither commands for or against? And what has Paul's argument been? Well, first he says in verse 3, he says, we welcome that brother who is weaker, not to quarrel over opinions, but verse 3 says we welcome him because God has welcomed him. We welcome him because he's been welcomed as our brother in Christ. God has welcomed him. And so who are we to say you're not welcome because we disagree on this thing that's neither positively or negatively commanded? We see in verse 4 that his argument has been that we welcome, we do not pass judgment, we do not despise or quarrel about opinions because God is the master of our brother, not ourselves. We are not, we are not here saying that I am your master or you are my master. We have one master and his name is Jesus. And so we gather together and, and we gather in Christ who is our master. God has welcomed our brother. He is the master of our brother. But then he goes on in verse four to remind us that it is not us who will cause our brother to stand on that final day? He says, rather, verse 4, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. We are not the ones making our brothers stand on that final day. Rather, it is Christ. Not only that, if you look at verse Six, he says, we welcome the brother. We, we do not quarrel over opinions because each one, whether the one who observes the day or does not observe, whether the one who eats or does not eat, does it in honor of the Lord because he's acting as part of his own convictions because he is obeying. And then finally, we welcome the brother. We, we don't quarrel over opinions because verse 9 Christ is Lord over all. And this morning, in, in verses 10 through 12, I think we get the next piece of Paul's argument, is that we do not quarrel over opinions. We welcome the weaker brother. We refuse to quarrel about opinions because God is a better judge than we are. Because God is a better judge than we are. And you're going to hear me use this language of, of God and not Christ as often. And I'm just, I'm just going to be transparent with you. I'm using that because that is what 
Paul uses here in verses 10 through 12. That's the language that I'm going to, to use here because that's the language he uses. But I do think that we find a parallel passage. I think it would be, it would be fair and it would be completely right to, to say that Christ is a better judge than we are. We understand this in 2 Corinthians 5.10, which we'll look at in just a moment. He, he, Paul says to the church at Corinth, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of God, the judgment seat of Christ. I'm using the word God just because that's what verses 10 through 12 use. And so here we arrive at this argument that we welcome the weaker brother, that we do not quarrel over opinions because God is a better judge than we are. And I have this morning four reasons that God is a better judge than we are. I'm just going to give them to you first and then we'll walk through them. God is a better judge than we are, number one, because he judges authoritatively. Number two, he's a better judge than we are because he judges finally. Number three, he, he's a better judge than we are because he judges universally. And finally, he's a better judge than we are because he judges individually. And so let's look first at number one. God is a better judge than we are because he judges authoritatively. Look back at verse 10. Paul says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you... Why do you despise your brother? Where did this language come from? This is just a restatement of the language that he uses in verse 3. He says in verse 3, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And so when we look at, at verse 10, he's, he seems to be restating with more emphasis, we are not people who despise or cast judgment on things that are matters of opinion. And so he says in verse 10, why do you pass judgment? He's looking here at that, at that brother who is, who is weaker, who is, who is count, whose conscience is more bound, and who is saying, well, you can't do that because I can't do that. He says, why do, you, why do you say that? Why do you cast judgment? Why do you pronounce judgment over him? Because he indeed is free in Christ to do the thing that he, he says he is doing. And then verse 10 goes on, or you, why do you despise your brother? So Paul says, in case the other side thinks they're going to get off easy, he says, not only are you the, the, the weak, weaker brother, do not, do not cast judgment on your brother for, for participating in the freedom that he has in Christ. And he says, and you, stronger brother, do not despise your weaker brother, because when you are around him, you should limit your liberty, because you should be a, a loving brother to him. And I'm repeating this word brother because I think Paul does on purpose when he says, why do you pass judgment on your brother or you, why do you despise your brother? This repetition is on purpose. He's saying you are brothers with that person that you are pronouncing judgment over. You're not his master. You're not over him to lord it over him. You are his brother. You who would disagree and quarrel about opinions, you are brothers. It reminds me of kind of in this motif of journey, those moments where we all pile into the minivan as, as kids and, and we're riding down the road for what seemed like 30 hours and, and we were taking our index finger and getting it just close enough to our brothers without touching them and saying, I'm not, I'm not touching you. Right? And this, this, this picture of of, of you are brothers. Do you, do you realize who you are? Do you realize that, that you have been adopted into the family? Do you realize that you, are, you have 
Christ in common. You have this one family in common. Don't treat each other like you're not brothers. Don't treat one another like they're some kind of outsider because they have a difference of opinion. Again, a difference of opinion that's not negatively or positively commanded in the Scriptures. He says, you are brothers. He repeats it. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? And we ask the question, what is the disposition of a brother? If we truly understand who we are, if we look back through, through the first several chapters of Romans and we say, okay, we have all been adopted into this family. We who were slaves to sin have become made sons of God in Christ, that we are brothers and sisters, that we are fellow heirs with Christ, that we have been brought in, that we've been bought with a price, that, that we have in common a righteousness that is not our own, but a righteousness that comes from Christ, that we are brothers. What does that mean? Why is this here and not all the way back to the beginning of Romans? It's because Paul has spent chapters shouting at us that we have Christ in common. We are brothers. We've been adopted into the same family. So how wild would it be for us to pronounce final judgment on someone based off of an opinion that they hold that's different than ours? That as brothers, we ought to have a disposition of love. Which I think the table is an excellent picture of. Right? That we get to watch one another take the elements of the table. Brothers and sisters who we love. Brothers and sisters who we, we gather together with and, and we're reminded of our, our common identity in Christ. And we, and we look at them and we, we look across the room and we say, these are brothers and sisters who have been bought with the same blood that I have, who have been adopted into the same family that I have. And so my first disposition not, should not be to say, how dare they disagree with me on this one opinion? But rather... How glorious is it that we have Christ in common? He says, he calls them brothers. And he speaks of this brotherhood as, as kind of a, a disposition of love, which I think is really helpful to contrast that with uh, the book of John. I mean, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7, Jesus is... is preaching, and he speaks of judging others. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, you're welcome to turn there if you would like. We're going to look at it for a few minutes. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, Jesus is, is preaching, and he says here in, in Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. If we're making lists of verses that are taken out of context, this is probably in the top 10. Right? Judge not that you be not judged. And we understand from the context here that, that Christ is not talking about we have no right to say anything to anybody about anything that they're doing because we can't judge uh, because we'll be judged if we do. What's he saying? Let's, let's go on. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why, verse 3, do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What I don't want you to miss here in verse 5 is that it is loving to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Right? This is 
This is what he says. He says, you, you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. He says, just take the log out of your own eye first so that you can see clearly to actually help him. And I think this goes up and against this picture of brotherly affection that we have in, in Romans 14. If, if we are brothers and sisters, if we have been bought with a price and if we are in the same family, if we've been adopted by the same father, if we are, if we are in this family as brothers and sisters, then our disposition towards one, one another is not to, to be first to throw attacks at them for differences of opinion, but rather to love them, to love them enough, and we'll talk about it in just a moment, to love them enough to be clear with them when there is sin, glaring sin in their lives. And to, and to expect that if they love us, that they would be clear with us about glaring sin in our lives. But to approach one another in a manner of humility, a manner of love, not pronouncing judgment before the end of the age, not pronouncing final judgment before the end of the age. And so we ask the question, if we're looking back at Romans chapter 14, if we're brothers and not masters over one, one another, but if we truly are brothers, and you ask the question, why do you pass judgment on your brother or you, why do you despise your brother if we truly are brothers, then what is our authority? I think this is important. As we think about convictions and opinions, what is our authority? Our authority is the Word of God. Our authority is the Scriptures. The Scriptures uh, are our authority. And it doesn't take long for us to look through the Scriptures and have things that we believe that we know are true and we know for, for a fact are true because they're written in the Scriptures and to come to a different conclusion about a matter of conviction based off of the same Scriptures. It's not impossible. It's actually common, right? We share the, the same word. This is our authority. We have no other authority to, to say what is right and what is wrong according to God because we have the scriptures. And when we look into the scriptures, we can, we can find true things, things that are positively commanded and negatively commanded, and we can make wise decisions from those things and end in two separate places. And so the question is, what is our authority in those places? Because if, if our authority is the Scripture, then by definition, we do not have the authority to cast judgment based off of a, an opinion. Because if our authority is the Scripture, then we don't have the authority to say, well, your opinion is wrong if it's not clearly stated in the Scriptures. So what does this mean? How does this apply? What, are, what, are, what is Paul trying to, to say? It seems to me that Paul is trying to say that because we don't have the final authority, because we are not the final authority, then it would be wrong for us to write someone off before the last day based off of an opinion. It would be wrong to write someone off completely before the last day based off of an opinion. And I, I'm reminded of this, and, and it's one of those things that you think back on when you're just randomly doing something and you're thinking about your past or you're not really thinking about anything and then something comes up, something you thought or something you said, and it just makes you kind of stop in your tracks and think, gosh, I was a terribly arrogant person. But I can remember times in high school and in college where I looked at someone and based off of an opinion said, like, they're not. They're not genuine. They're not gonna. They're not gonna last. And one of the 
good things about Facebook is that it tends to prove me wrong. And I see brothers and sisters living vibrant Christian lives who, in my own arrogance, based off of an opinion, said, no, they're not, they're not real. We, we can't judge authoritatively on opinions if they're not clearly delineated in the Scriptures. Therefore, it can't be us. It has to be the one who can truly judge authoritatively on opinions. Because what we're doing is, when we, when we, like verse 10 says, when we pass judgment on our brother, when we pronounce final judgment over him based off an opinion, or when we despise our brother solely because of a difference of opinion, what we are doing is we are, we are not treating or acknowledging that brother as a brother, but rather as someone who we are arbitrating their godliness over. Phil Newton says, the problem that Paul considers is when we fail to treat a brother as a brother, but instead put him or her into servitude to our personal preferences. And why is this so heinous? Because there's not a questionnaire when you walk into the door that has one box that says, do you agree with the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? And then has 30 boxes below it that says, do you agree with me on this and on this? on this, and on this, and on this, and this, and this. We haven't gathered because we all have the same opinion about some arbitrary thing. We haven't gathered because we all have the same opinion on, on anything. We've gathered because we have Christ in common. And so if we haven't gathered on the basis of opinions, then it's not our place to pronounce final judgment authoritatively over someone based off of an opinion. We continue into the second half of verse 10. We see second, that not only does God judge authoritatively, but he also judges finally. If you look at the second half of verse 10, he says, Why do you pass judgment on your, on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. This is this understanding of the judgment seat, this word here is the same word that is used when, when Jesus stands before Pilate. It's the, the idea that there's a tribunal, that there's someone standing before us who has, who has really the, the, key, the keys to our fate. He says, we all will stand before whose judgment seat? The judgment seat of God. And we get a general sense of this if you turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 20. I want to fill full, what is the, what is the judgment seat of God? Because I think it's, it's vitally important that we understand what, what Paul means here when he says, you will stand before the judgment seat of God. What is he saying? In a general sense, we understand in, in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11, that we will all stand before this judgment seat. So if you look here at Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw, John writes, a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. He's holy. And no place was found for them. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death in the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
So in a general sense, if we take Revelation 20, we understand that there is a general sense in which all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the question is, what's the difference? What's the difference between those who are in Christ and those who are apart from Christ? The only difference is this, that our names in verse 15 are found in the book of life. And and Revelation would already tell us that 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 name was written there before the foundation of the world, that it's not something that we attained on our own, that it's not something that we built with our hands. It says that we, the only difference between us and anyone else is that our name is written in the book of life, that we are in Christ and in him we are safe forever. And when we look at a a passage like this and and we say that book of life, the book of life where my name is written, the justification that is mine because of what Christ has done for me. We look and we can be resolute, right? We can say, I have no other argument. I have no other plea. My only plea, the only thing I have on that day is that I am in Christ. Not because of my own works, but because of his love for me. And in that day, that will be our only plea. Jesus makes it clear that we we don't come with arguments of what we've done or what we've brought or how many good works we've done or how we've lived, we come with the only plea that I am found in Christ. But the New Testament gives us a more robust picture of judgment, the judgment seat specifically for believers. And I think this is important because as we're looking at Romans 14, the the picture that we get in Romans 14.10 is when he says, for we... Who is he talking about? Well, he's talking to us who have brothers in the family of God. So if he's talking to us who have brothers in the family of God, then we are, he's talking to the family of God. He's talking to the church. He says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So what does that mean? What does that look like? I want to read a few things to you just to remind you of what that looks like. And first, I think it's helpful for us to remember Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12. And they say this, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. We understand that if we are in Christ, that the judgment seat of God is not a place for him to arbitrate whether or not we are in him. Our, our life in him is secure. If we are in Christ, then we stand before him with our plea being, being Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. If we're in Christ, we are dead to sin and we are alive to righteousness. And when we stand before him on that day, that is our plea. But as we stand before him on that day, the scriptures fill out a picture for us of of what it looks like to to be, if you will, judged according to our works. So if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that's where we'll look first. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to kind of go on a field trip here. So if you want to turn, show off your Bible drill skills, you're welcome to. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, Paul is, is talking about divisions in this church at Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, But I, brothers, 
could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? There's some opinions. Verse 5, when there, when, when, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Hold that in your mind. Each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so he's given us this picture here. There's a foundation that is Christ. The foundation can't be laid by anyone else. It is, it is Christ and it's laid in Christ. The foundation is there. And what does he say in verse 12? Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, so on top of the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Now let's organize some words here. Gold, silver, precious stones seem to be in one category. Wood, hay, straw seem to be in another category. We have a, a picture of two different types of buildings that are being built. Now, who's building these buildings? He's talking to the church at Corinth, believers in Christ. There, is, there are some building on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, and precious stones, and then there are some building on the foundation of Christ with wood, hay, and straw. Verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. That final day will show it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And so if your work on the foundation is that, that first type, that type that's precious stones and gold and silver, then it will last. But if your work, he says in verse 14, if, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. We have a picture here then of that day when we will be assessed based off of our works and seemingly rewarded based off of our works. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. We have similar language from Jesus when he says, build up, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves cannot come in and steal. We build, we build up treasures for ourselves in heaven. He says, if you've built on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, then it will last. And if you've built on it with wood, hay, and straw, it won't. But what does he say? It's not as if your justification is at stake he says, verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so we have a picture here. We know that in Christ, that, at that judgment seat, we, our plea is Christ. But we also know that we will be judged according to the, what we built on that foundation of Christ and, and will it last, but only lasts if it's 
gold, silver, precious stones. Paul says more in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what we read just a minute ago, starting in verse 6, he says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Who makes it their aim to please him? People who are in Christ. So we make it our aim to please him, verse 10, for we must all, who is the all? The all is those who are in Christ who aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Whether good or evil. It's believers in Christ. 1 John 8, 2 John 8, excuse me. We don't have to turn there, but 2 John 8 says to ensure that we get the full reward and that we not lose the things that we have worked for. In Revelation 3, Paul, I mean, Jesus, excuse me, tells the church at Philadelphia, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. We have a similar picture of crown in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And in Luke 19, we have the parable of the minas, where Jesus seems to be saying through this parable that that there are rewards of varying degrees, for varying degrees of faithfulness. And you might be like, Blake, why are you saying all of this to us? Because I think Paul's point is that we don't pass final judgment on our brothers. We don't despise finally our brothers. Because there is one who judges finally. There is one who on that day will judge finally, who will judge our works as either precious stones and gold and silver or as straw, hay, and wood. And only what he says about us in the end will matter. We know for sure that if we're in Christ, what he will say about us is that we are accepted in him based off of his work. But it also matters that we understand that only what he says about our brother will matter in that day. That he is the one who can judge finally. Because he has the authority, because he sees the end from the beginning, he is the one who can judge finally. He is better at it than we are. And so when we look at a, a verse like this that says, for to this end Christ died and lived, uh, excuse me, for verse 10, for we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. We look at that and we say, well, what do we do? We aim for faithfulness. We aim for faithfulness because he is the final judge. We are not the arbiter of our, our brother's souls based off of opinions. He is the final judge of our opinions. And how much better is it that he is the final judge and not ourselves? But not only does he judge authoritatively and judge finally, third, he judges universally. And this is the text that we read this morning for our call to worship that, that Charles led us in, he says in verse 11, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. I love Isaiah 45 because it is a glorious picture of the sovereignty of God. And you, you can turn there because we're going to spend some time in it. Isaiah 45 is this 
this recounting of what the Lord is saying to Cyrus. And Cyrus is a pagan king. And so we have here in, in Isaiah 45 this glorious picture of God's sovereignty over all things, that he's not bound like, like some of the other quote-unquote gods that those in the Old Testament would believe in. That, well, we've got to be in this certain place because that's where our God resides, and so we can win that battle. Or we've got to be battling at this certain time because that's when our God's awake, and we can win that battle. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases, and he is sovereign over even pagan kings. And I love this, that Paul uses, by the inspiration of the Spirit, Isaiah 45 to show us that God judges universally. He depends here on Isaiah to defend his position. How is it that God can judge universally? Look at Isaiah 45.1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I, can, I can't imagine in the first place the power that comes with being a king. We read about it in the scriptures and we read about it in history, but I can't imagine the power that comes with being a king. And what does God say here at the beginning? He says, whose right hand I have grasped, all your power is mine, that everything that you have belongs to me. There is nothing outside of his power. He's not like other quote unquote little G gods who who need to be in a certain place or who have to be appeased in a certain way. He is God over all. He will do what he pleases. And if that is to grasp the right hand of a king, that is what he does. How can he judge universally? Because nothing is outside of his power. But if you go on in, in verse 4 of, of Isaiah 45, it says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. He says, not only is our God, not only is the God that we worship have nothing outside of his power, but he, he, he not just, doesn't just have nothing outside of his power, but there is none other like him. That you could search all of the world and you could try to find one who has this nature and there is none other. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh and there is none other like him. He forms light and he forms darkness. And not only that, he goes on in, in verse 8. He says, shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. 
Not only is nothing outside of his power, not only is there none other like him, but he created all things and he alone has claim to be everything's ultimate judge. He says, who says to the potter, why haven't you put handles on me? Who says to the father, who are you begetting? Who says to the mother, with who are you in labor? Our God says, I made the earth and I created man in it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all of their hosts. He created all things and he has ultimate claim to judge. And so we ask the question, then how does he judge universally? And this is what we read this morning that Charles led us in. If we look at verse 22, what does he say? He says, turn to me and be saved. What kind of salvation does the one who made the earth and everything in it offer? He offers one that can't be taken away. He offers a salvation that is forever. He says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. If you're questioning my power, it's me. I am God. There's none like me. Verse 23, for by myself I have sworn. Why? Because there's nothing else bigger to swear by. For my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. Of him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. He judges universally. And how does he judge universally? Well, first he judges universally those who are saved. And what does he say about them? In the Lord, verse 25, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. He judges universally in church. That's a comfort to us because if we are in Christ, he's already promised that he has judged us universally in Christ as justified. Not because we have provided our own justification, but because he provided it for us in his son. And he judges universally because that's not the only option. In verse 24, he says, It shall be said of me, a righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed, all who are incensed against him. That there is another way that he judges universally, and he judges those who, who are against him in shame. It is their shame. And he promises to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Philippians 2 echoes this, this promise. And I'm reminded of how glorious it is about Christ. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. Why did he exalt him? Well, it says, because he was obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He judges universally, which means that you can either bow the knee to him here in glad submission, seeing the glory of the gospel and saying, I, I don't have any other plea but to, but to bow my knee before you and to, and to beg for your forgiveness because you are God and I am not and I am a sinner through and through and, and in me is nothing to make me attractive to you. 
or there will be a day. And he promises by himself, the one who created all things, he says, there will be a day where your knees will be broken and you will bow in submission to the Lord of all. He judges universally. And what does this have to do with our opinions? It, It makes us humble because we cannot judge universally. He is God and we are not. And nothing will be left out of his judgment, even our opinions. He judges universally. And so we are humble. Every knee will bow to him and not to us. And we look finally at verse 12 and realize that he also judges individually. This is more or less a point of application, and so I want to be careful. But I want you to notice how the language shifts. If you look at verse 10 and verse 11, he uses, he uses this all in every language. So he says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He kind of lumps us all in together. In verse 11, he says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. But then he switches the language here in verse 12, and he says, so then, he goes singular, and he says, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So we look at this shift in language, and here's what we're reminded of. We're reminded first that each of us individually will give an account. This isn't about our salvation. It's not that we are giving an account for how good we were so that we could earn justification. This is an account of what we did with Christ. He says each of us will give an account. Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says something similar. Every careless word we will give an account for. He says, we will give an account, and who will we give an account for? I think this is so vitally important to what Paul's arguing. He says, so that each of us will give an account of who? Of himself. There's a video that Sarah and I found ourselves sending to each other about five years ago, all the time when, you know, we'd be discussing something that's difficult and it's this uh this little girl and she's in the back of the car and she's talking to her mom and her mom asks her a question and she says worry about yourself and she says it over and over and over again like as a parent you know that would fly all over me but i think about the (laughs) i think about the the wisdom in that statement as we look at verse 12 paul says you will give an account of yourself to God. You will give an account of yourself. And when I say something like that, I know that there are tons of caveats that are building in your mind. So I just want to address a couple of them. This does not mean that Paul is saying that you should not correct your opponents with gentleness. How do we know that? Because he's already said you should correct your opponents with gentleness in 2 Timothy 2. This does not mean that we should not admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all, because he's already commanded that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It doesn't mean that we should not reprove, rebuke, and exhort, because he's already commanded that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 
It doesn't mean that we should not restore the one caught in transgression in a spirit of gentleness because he's already commanded that in Galatians 6. Where the scriptures are clear and say, you are in sin. We ought to lovingly, as brothers and sisters, say, brother, sister, repent. I love you. Please repent. But when it comes to opinions, Paul is saying, you will give an account. I will give an account to God for yourself, for myself. So therefore, if we want to add an application to that, if we want to apply that truth, we will give an account to God for ourselves. So stop judging and despising your brother based off of his opinions. Or to put it a different way, to look at it from another side, you will give an account of yourself. You will not give an account before God of your brother. So, examine yourself. What's verse 5 say? Be convinced in your own mind. You will give an account of yourself to God. Examine it. Be convinced in your own mind that what you're what your convictions are based in the truth of Scripture. And I love how he ends it. So then each of us will give an account to himself, of himself, excuse me, to God. Almost as if to say, your brother is not going to give an account of himself to you. Why? Because God is a better judge than you are. Your brother will not stand before you on the day of judgment. Your brother will not stand before you on judgment day. And praise God for that. Praise God for that, that, that my brothers won't stand before me on judgment day. Because I can't judge finally. I can't judge universally. I can't judge authoritatively. I can't judge individually finally on everything. Hodge said, as therefore God is the supreme judge and we are to render our account to him, we should await his decision and not presume to act the part of judge over our brethren. And the question that I have to ask myself when I'm tempted to judge, knowing that he judges individually, and he's not merely judging in that he's not merely judging the, the times that I have passed judgment or despised a brother and gossiped about it. He says that, that in the end, all that is dark will be brought to light. That it's the, it's the moments where in my own heart, I've convinced myself in my arrogance that I can pass judgment on someone finally based off an opinion because I'm not sharing it with someone else. He says, nothing will escape his sight. And so, based off of everything that Paul has said to us, for 13 and a half chapters, is our God not worthy of our trust in his judgment? Is he not worthy of our trust in, in how he will judge in that day? And I'm reminded that this is how we walk. This is how we march to Zion. That we are secure in Christ. That we are together in the same caravan walking to Zion because we have the same Father. And because we are walking together as brothers and as sisters who have Christ in common. And so as we march on to Zion, secure in Christ, 
not, not questioning when we get there whether or not our justification is going gonna, is gonna to work, but believing that it will, believing that he is sure, that he is God over all, and that what he has promised will come to pass, that we, we march to Zion together secure. And we march to Zion together, not arguing over opinions and convictions because what we have in common is so much greater than those things. And we march to Zion together and we live in unity despite our differences. And we have the opportunity. We have the opportunity to be the kind of people who fall out of the minivan at the rest stop and and can't keep their hands off each other's necks because we're angry with each other about differences of opinion. Or we can be reminded of the glorious picture that we have of the gospel in Jesus Christ, that what unites us is way stronger than any of the opinions or convictions that divide us if they're not positively or negatively commanded in scriptures. I'm reminded of that song we're marching to Zion, one of the verses that Isaac Watts wrote It says this, it says, The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets. Rather than just getting to the end, he says, The the walk up the hill, the walk to Zion, yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields. Before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets. And we get to enjoy those sweets together. We get to walk to Zion together, marching on as those who have been bought with the same blood, adopted into the same family, purchased with the same price. And for the joy that it is to walk together, we get to not pass judgment finally or despise based off of opinions. Let's pray.